Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Jane Richards on the New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Assistant Professor at the University of Nottingham, Andreas Fulda. Dr. Fulda has published widely in both English, Chinese and German. He's a Senior Fellow at the University of Nottingham Asia Research Institute. In his research, he specialises in democratisation studies, leverage in the public, private and social sector, citizen diplomacy, as well as EU-China relations. He's worked in China NGOs on capacity-building projects for Chinese civil society. He regularly appears on and in major international media sources such as Al Jazeera, The Times, and France 24. Today, I'm speaking to Andreas about his new book, The Struggle for Democracy in Mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, Sharp Power and Its Discontents, published by Routledge earlier this year. Andreas, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, Jane. Um, I'm wondering if we can start off, if you just wouldn't mind telling me a little bit about yourself and how you came to write The Struggle for Democracy in Mainland China and Taiwan. Uh, Sure. Well, this uh, book has been uh, 10 years in the making, so to speak. But actually, um, when I drafted the preface, um, I realized it's actually been a a journey that's uh, taken me uh, 30 years, so to speak. And um, uh, I was just um, thinking back, you know, how comes that I became interested in all things Chinese? And in a way, um, uh, it all kind of dates back to 1989. That's when I was uh, you know, 12 years old. Uh, that's, of course, the year when um, the uh, pro-democracy and anti-corruption movement in mainland China was suppressed. So I, I saw that kind of beamed into our living room. Uh, back then, we lived in Geneva. Um, and that left uh, a deep impression uh, on me. Uh, and just the day uh, after um, June 4th, uh, there was another spectacle, um, an American-born Taiwanese, um, uh, Michael uh, Chang, um, actually um, uh, progressed to the final in uh, the, the Paris um, Open. And I hadn't paid much attention to Asia at all. Uh, whether it was China or Taiwan or any other part of uh, um, the Asian region. Um, and I was really into tennis. And so in a very quick succession, I got a taste of uh, Asia. Um, and one was, um, of course, the shocking pictures that we saw from Tiananmen Square. And the other one was quite different. It was a, a young, um, uh, you know, Michael Chang, uh, you know, Succeeding against all odds against back then uh, even Chen, uh, you know um, uh, Lendl who who was uh, the number one, and I really admired him uh, for that. Um, and so these kind of two opposite um, kind of emotional reactions to Asia have stayed with me, so to speak. Um, uh, a disgust for you know authoritarian, arbitrary kind of uh, rule, but also like an admiration for you know. Um, you know, the work ethic and, you know, the entrepreneurialism and, um, you know, the fighting spirit of of Asian people. And so, yeah, I guess um, that kind of um, 
uh, informs uh, my, my worldview, so to speak. And um, yeah, and as you said, you know, I've been like working in China for many years. I've studied China, and so I always try to combine both uh, yeah theory and uh, practice in, in my work. And so, so this book is also an embodiment of that. And I do think you actually you really capture that in the book, um, both the theory side and it, it is grounded very well in the literature and the scholarship, but also with so many practical examples, um, some firsthand and also from the wider historical events. And so combining, you know, a bit of what you've just said about, um, you know, on the one hand, these uh, kind of this arbitrary rule um, and authority displayed by China and then on the other hand, the work ethic of entrepreneurialism and fighting spirit of people in Asia and in this region, um, I think this relates to what you call the research puzzle at the heart of this book. Um, and you said that it, it's to what extent political act- activists in mainland China, Taiwan and Hong Kong have made progress in their quest to liberalise and democratise their respective policies. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit about the overarching theme and the overarching research question of the book? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, what I've learned over the past uh, 15 years is that, um, you know, good theory is derived from practice and good practice is informed by theory. And um, here I'm very much influenced by John Dewey, uh, Donald uh, Schoen. Um, you know, these are philosophers and, and uh pragmatists uh, who have always tried to combine those two two worlds. And what I've noticed over the years is also that uh, there is this um, real disconnect between academia uh, on the one hand and the world of the activists on the other. Um, And I I don't think it can be that, you know, academics just study democracy and then think that it is somehow the job of others to struggle for it. Now, um, of course, uh, I don't suggest that someone who's been primarily reading books and and analyzing, you know, um, uh, research puzzles should uh, be at the forefront necessarily of, um, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, protests and getting tear gassed like in, in yeah, uh, Hong Kong. Yeah, I can Kong. imagine that, yes. <laughs> but I do think that we need to narrow this gap um, because um, in a way what I found is that uh, democratization studies overall as an academic field is very backward looking and unable to predict democratic changes in the future. And um, so my interest was really to uh, see what politically active citizens in mainland Chinatown, Hong Kong are doing uh, to um, advance democratic reforms. And that, that is uh, something that needs to be done empirically. Uh, we need to talk to them. We need to um, engage with them. We need to live with them uh, to see how they make sense of it all. Um, yeah, and so... Um, this, this has been kind of like, uh, yeah, my, my research interest uh, for a very, very long time. And this is now the culmination and the result of it. Yeah, yeah and that, that does come through. You do situate, um, you situate the theory very well in and around these key historical events. Um, and so I think it's quite relevant now to ask you, turning to China, um, you know, you talk about mainland China's incomplete modernization, and that you say that since 1945, China has made some advances in modernization, 
But this has happened without social equality, without transparency or accountability and in the absence of an independent and assertive civil society. And that's arguably meant that corruption, collusion and nepotism have spread from the elite to the mass level. Now, can, I'm wondering if you can describe this process of modernisation and how the, this is limited in the mainland. Yes, sure. I, I mean, uh, modernization theory, um, although it's been in a way discredited uh, and uh, refuted many times over, in the case of mainland China, actually, it's been uh, a very uh, powerful kind of lens that people have used. Um, but of course, now people are waking up to the fact that um, it doesn't really apply um, because in a nutshell, um, you know, the idea was that um, a country that uh, becomes more affluent uh, develops a middle class, uh, which is, you know, moderately well off and educated, uh, you know, that such um, a society would liberalize and democratize. Now, that's, of course, not what we've seen in mainland China. At least um, that process hasn't uh, been, um, uh, yeah, a complete success. Um, and so what I, I try to express here is that, yes, you do, of course, now have a nascent middle class. Uh, people in the cities in mainland China are relatively better off. Uh, many now own property, for example, and can afford to travel abroad, etc. Um, but if you look at the political economy overall, um, yeah, we see a very different picture. And um, here we then need to talk about the party and uh, we need indeed need to talk about uh, you know systemic and uh, endemic corruption and how it has actually uh, you know spilled over into you know the public domain um, and yeah I mean it's um, there's actually a, a, almost like a turning point almost the, the, the couple of years before w, WTO accession um, I think uh, there, there were there was a real momentum for reform. If you just think back to the era of Jiang Zemin, Zhu Rongji, um, some real structural reforms took place. Uh, so Zhu Rongji actually um, managed to uh, uh, unify the domestic uh, market, which was uh, a major achievement. Or uh, Jiang Zemin managed to kind of uh, push back the People's Liberation Army, which had become like a, a state within the state. But in a way, after WTO accession, after 2001, um, various interest groups, you know, they um, consolidated their power and they started uh, to, um, you know, almost capture the party state. And we haven't really seen much structural reform since. Um, and this kind of consolidation of uh, these uh, interest groups has meant that, um, uh, yeah, now we can see, um, you know, corruption entering stratospheric uh, dimensions, really. Um, which uh, make everything that we've seen in the West in terms of large-scale corruption, you know, um, uh, dwarf, really. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the examples are, you know, really uh, staggering. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I think that that also, it comes through and it relates to some of the other points that you make. For example, you, uh, the politics of China um it's now become this, you describe it as a winner-takes-all conception of politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say also that the party state since 1989 has started to radically move back and forth between the role of a developmental and a predatory state. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk more about this? Is that related to corruption or, yeah, just yes, broadly? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think um, 
I, I provide this uh, example of the uh, milk scandal of 2008. Now, this is not new, uh, strictly speaking, but very often people only look at um, just partial aspects of it. Um, it actually uh, can um, reveal uh, a simultaneous state and market uh, failure. Uh, so basically what we have here is um, a, a scandal where um, uh, a lot of uh, Chinese citizens get sick and especially their children develop kidney stones because of unsafe uh, uh, you know, milk formula. And so what's the problem here? Um, the, the dairy industry sets a very low standard for um, milk nu nutrition levels because they want to sell more milk. The state goes along with that, but then realizes oh, they would actually like to have more nutritious milk. So just to explain that, if let's say I drink a, a glass of milk here in the UK, in terms of nutrition levels, you would have to drink two glasses of milk in mainland China to, to reach the same levels. So what do they then uh, do as kind of a workaround um, they um, ask Chinese scientists to develop um, uh, ways to uh, increase nutrition levels. Uh, but uh, they then add melamine to, to these milk products, which is um, uh, highly problematic because it's dangerous for human consumption. And um, so we see here uh, then... Chinese uh, scientists um, assisting the party state on the one hand, but also then working with the dairy industry um, to um, uh, basically produce milk that is unsafe for human uh, consumption. And when uh, actually that uh, scandal broke and we saw um, uh, that more than 300,000 people got ill um, and, uh, you know, six uh, Chinese babies uh, died, Actually, the party state suppressed all, all these news. Uh, they silenced the victims and they tried to kind of sweep everything under the, uh, 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 the carpet. And, you know, we're still dealing with this um, uh, scandal today because um, if you are in Australia, New Zealand, Canada or, or the UK for that matter, um, you will occasionally see um, that, for example, Chinese students go to a supermarkets to buy baby formula. And uh, because the demand has been so high, often supermarkets now restrict them to buy uh, two packs of baby formula. And they then send that to, uh, to China, either to their relatives or they try to make a little bit of money on the side by, by just, you know, it's this kind of a business. And so um, until today, you know, this problem hasn't been solved. And a lot of mainland Chinese consumers uh, don't trust, um, you know, their own, you know, Chinese brands. And, you know, if, you know, that shows us that, um, you know, a, a very real problem of food safety hasn't been solved in the past 12 years. Yeah, actually, anecdotally, I can, um, I can attest to that. I moved to the mainland uh, just after, a few years after 2008, and I had my first baby there. Um, and the price of formula, because everyone only wants to buy imported formula, is just exorbitant. Um, and there are still restrictions on taking how much formula you can take in. Um, so it, it really is, you know, um, and there are other kind of things that are continually covered up, um, which is really concerning um, in relation to food safety, safety specifically. 
Well, and you see, I mean, uh, having scandals, I mean, we've had food safety scandals in the West as well, of course. And, you know, uh, things like that can happen. But if we have market failure, a regulatory state has to step in, kind of beef up the regulations and oversight. That's mm. what we would normally expect um, from our governments. But in the case of mainland China, that's just clearly not happening. And it is not happening because of the political economy, because of the you know lack of uh, media freedoms. And um, so, you know, uh, it, it does matter, you know, whether you have a one-party state, a dictatorship, or something yeah, more of a, you know, a liberal democratic setup based on the rule of law, because that actually allows us to, to solve such problems. Yeah, and I think that relates to my next question, actually. Um, you give a lot of background on the CCP's rise to power and the resulting the trinity of party, government and the military. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about this um, broadly? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's quite hard to kind of like uh, summarize, uh, you know, a complex subject as the Chinese Communist Party in a cu- couple of sentences. But let me uh, try nevertheless. Um, <laughs> like in... Uh, in China, we call this trinity uh, Dang, Zheng, Jun, meaning like Dang is the party, Zheng, the government, and Jun, the military. Now, we can kind of unpack this, uh, you know, one by one. Uh, in You know, the fact of the matter is that the party controls the state. So that's why we call it a party state, uh, meaning that all these um, emblems of the state, in a way, are it's just like a, a charade. Um, ultimately, everything boils down to the Communist Party. And interestingly, under Xi Jinping, we've seen the party come out of the shadows um, and it's become much more visible. This is a big change to, uh, let's say, 10 years ago, even 20 years ago, when um, the, the party was, of course, visible, but much more um, hidden. And uh, Richard McGregor has uh, uh, written about that in his excellent book, The Party. And the party, of course, also controls the military um, because if the military is not loyal to the party, then you know the party is in peril. And uh, so that also explains why Xi Jinping has paid so much attention to kind of um, make sure that the, the generals are loyal not just to, to the party but also to him himself. But you know, from a democratization perspective, such a setup is of course highly problematic because if you know, state institutions are not independent from one-party control, um, it's very hard to liberalize because basically the party is hardwired into all of these state institutions. And the other very big problem is, of course, if if the military is politically um, invested, um, it is always possible that in the process of liberalization, democratization, the, par- uh, the military may step in and say, you know, that's all, you know, um, you, you, you politicians may want to do that, but we will not allow you to do that. And so uh, these are big, uh, you know, two big obstacles, the party state, uh, the party being hardwired into the state structure, and of course, the role of the military. And just uh, building on that, uh, you know, this idea of corruption and then the fear that the military may step in, uh, you talk about this rule by bribery and rule by fear, can you expand upon how these have actually been applied in the mainland? Sure. I mean, rule by bribery, rule by fear, it's basically the way I, I um, 
describe you know the, the carrots and sticks um, that the Chinese Communist Party uses, because of course uh, anyone who's dealt with uh, China Chinese politics is aware it's not all just draconian suppression of public uh, you know um, sentiment and, and and public demands. It's it's um, a bit more subtle. Suppression does play a role. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, the carrots, for example, are, of course, equally important. And so um, the party state has uh, used patronage and associated privileges to generate loyalty to the CCP. Um, and so in more practical terms, they have co-opted business people and other professionals. Um, so think of university lecturers, for example, who get uh, preferential, you know, uh, access to to housing uh, and uh, and other benefits, for example. Um, but you know they've co-opted business people and other professionals, not just within China but also outside China, into the party state orbit to neutralize uh, you know social groups that could potentially come into conflict with the party. And um, the carrots are being used so strategically that, uh, for example, let's say there is a local community where there are local grievances. Let's say, you know, there's a development project that uh, Chinese citizens don't like or an environmental, uh, you know, disaster has struck and people want compensation, etc. They literally use money to pacify these conflict-capable uh, groups in Chinese society. It's very costly, but just think from you know their point of view, uh, using the people armed police to beat up people, to imprison people, uh, etc. That is also costly. There's a real you know price tag on uh, suppression. So if actually um, bribing people or paying people off is cheaper, you know the Communist Party will do that. Uh, but it's a kind of case by case. Um, so this is like the carrots, uh, you know, the rule by bribery aspect. And then, of course, you have still uh, the rule by fear. And, you know, um, I can talk you through. I mean, there are five dimensions to that. And it's a, it's a rather extensive uh, list. Um, um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is very real. Um, I, th- I think if drawing these points together is your argument is essentially that um, you say the securitization of mainland China under Xi Jinping since 2012 should actually be seen as a sign of profound weakness of an embattled regime. So I'm wondering, um, and you also say that it's not an exaggeration to surmise that throughout the 20th century, every family in mainland China has been victimised by the CCP in one way or the other. I'm wondering how vulnerable is mainland China's party state? Well, I mean, let's look, for example, at rule by fear, and then we see, you know, how vulnerable yeah. they really are. I mean, they are so suspicious of their own people. Uh, maybe I can start with a very short anecdote. Um, uh, I once spoke with a local government official, actually in in his office, so I can reveal the gender. Uh, and um, I remember vividly, um, you know, this gentleman leaning over and saying to me, you know, Andreas, what the problem is? the Communist Party doesn't trust the Chinese people. And I was really struck, uh, you know, back then that, you know, this this individual was so willing to to say that um, actually in his office, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, um, is rather unusual given that I'm uh, not not Chinese. Um, 
But you, you can see, for example, this, you know, the manifestation of this mistrust is, of course, the personal file system. So every uh, Chinese individual has a Dan'an uh, where everything is being noted from like, you know, cradle to grave, you know, from the kindergarten to, to school, to the university, and then, you know, the professional life. And having a file on oneself is, of course, uh, you know, it disciplines because you don't really know what's going in there because you can't read it. It's not like available where you can say, I would like to see my, my, my case. And now they're de developing this uh, personal file system into the social credit system, which is a way to micromanage the, uh, you know, the lives of uh, uh, Chinese people. But the problem is um, those individuals who are not willing to engage in self-censorship and to kind of comply and, uh, you know, with the, the, the party diktat, you know, those people who, let's say there was a, a Chai student who um, threw uh, ink on a, uh, a poster of Xi Jinping, you know, she found herself uh, in, in a psych psychiatric ward. So she was, um, you know, against her will um, and against uh, Chai's law, by the way, uh, she was um, uh, admitted to uh, um, uh, into, uh, yeah, into the psychiatric uh, system. And, you know, others like petitioners, for example, they would end up in labor camps, re-education camps, uh, so-called black jails, etc. So this is uh, another kind of um, indication how fearful actually Communist Party is of uh, its people. And then you have the strike hard campaigns, you have um, uh, the incarceration of the more than 1.5 million Uyghurs and Kazakhs. Um, you have this constant emphasis on rigid stability, uh, trying to kind of nip everything in the bud. And very often, uh, in order to kind of uh, maintain this stability, now local governments actually um, use thugs for hire to, to beat up pe people. So we see the rise of local mafia states as well. And all, all these are um, signs of not a confident uh, Chinese Communist uh, Party, but actually of one that feels um, vulnerable, uh, which is under threat. Uh, because if if the party was confident, it wouldn't need to use the sticks. It wouldn't need to constantly rule by fear. So in a way, you know, the rise of the security state, because you mentioned that, to me is a, a sign of weakness, not a, a sign of strength. Yeah, and um, that certainly comes out. Um, and just to put in context, because, I mean, the, the, the book is called Democracy in Mainland China. So there are, you know, democracy activists um, and people advocating for democracy in China. And you draw out um, what you see as the key episodes in the Chinese democracy movement, mm -hmm. um, uh, being the 1989 nationwide anti-corruption and pro-democracy movement or um the Tiananmen Massacre, the 1998 failed attempt to establish the China democracy movement, um, the Charter 08, which you say is the grand strategy of the mainland democracy movement, and then China's new citizen movement. Can you talk a little bit about the lessons that uh, democracy activists um, have learned and any reflections and the way forward, do you think, for democracy in the mainland? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I mean, in a way... Um, uh, Two of these, uh, well, one could say actually three of these episodes where, um, you know, they didn't achieve what they uh, set themselves out uh, to achieve. Um, so 1989, of course, was suppressed. Um, 
uh, the attempt to establish the Chinese Democracy Party also failed. And, um, you know, Charter 08, of course, uh, although it's a very um, significant uh, breakthrough for, for the mainland Chinese democracy movement, also wasn't, uh, in, let's say, signed by millions of people, but um, probably the, the number of signatories was, um, you know, didn't exceed, let's say, 10,000 people. But nevertheless, these are uh, still kind of milestones in, in the development of a uh, 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 you know, mainland Chinese democracy movement. And in particular, the, the new citizen movement um, uh, is actually um, uh, yeah, very intriguing and um, uh, potentially transformative uh, uh, movement, uh, which has the potential to um, yeah, uh, help liberalize um, uh, mainland China's um, uh, political system. But it, it really depends how we want to talk about it, because like each episode deserves its own kind of treatment. Um, but if you ask me about, you know, um, the kind of, uh, uh, in a nutshell, you know, what, what I see when looking at all, all four episodes is um, uh, perhaps on a very highly, you know, aggregate and abstract level, um, what we can see is, um, a, you know, a slow progress towards an explicit formulation of an ultimate goal of ending one-party rule. Because, for example, in 1989, uh, the students, the workers, also the intellectuals and, you know, the common uh, people um, who, who joined this movement, they were not necessarily aiming to overthrow the, the Communist Party. And uh, even in 1998, um, uh, the China Democracy uh, Party actually, they... Um, they kind of positioned themselves as what they called a loyal opposition. It didn't work out. The Communist Party didn't trust them. And they also nipped this uh, attempt to, to build an opposition party in the bud. And so it took until 2008 with the Charter 08 for the democracy movement to make it very clear, yes, they want to end one party rule. And this really has, um, you know, it underlines that, you know, oppression is domesticating so maybe for you and I and others as outsiders, it, it was always clear, well, how can China liberalize and democratize with the Chinese Communist Party in power? But if you're actually a Chinese citizen, you know, to, to get to you know, that point to say, well, maybe we, we can't achieve this objective with the Communist Party in power, that is a big, big step. And it does take a long time to, uh, to draw this conclusion. Yeah, and since 2008, this is kind of like the almost the, the consensus in the mainland Chinese democracy movement. And with the New Cities movement, uh, they've been trying to actually work towards that goal. And I think now that's a good time to start talking about Taiwan, perhaps, um, because similar similarly, I, it, it is comparable that it took a really long time for the Taiwan democracy movement Um to overcome authoritarianism by peaceful means. Um, you, you said it took more than 100 years. That kind of, it did give me some hope. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about this process and the lessons that we can learn from Taiwan, whether or not it's unique in the region, you think, or um, if it is comparable. Sure. I mean, uh, in a way, uh, the reason why I say 100 years is that um, even under Japanese colonial rule, uh, you had um, Taiwanese who were um, advocating for um, autonomy, uh, 
uh, and self-government. But um, after uh, the end of uh, World War II and uh, when the, the Nationalist Party arrived in, um, in Taiwan after they lost uh, the Civil War, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, of course, had no interest uh, whatsoever in granting uh, Taiwanese uh, more autonomy and self-government. So um, after 1947, the 228 incident, uh, we saw this very long period of white terror uh, where literally um, you know, tens of thousands of Taiwanese elites were killed or imprisoned. And it uh, basically took until you know, the late 1960s, early 1970s for um, uh, some opposition to re-emerge uh, in the form of this uh, Dangwai movement uh, outside the Nationalist Party, Dangwai. Um, and this, this movement, of course, uh, struggled. Um, it's very hard to challenge, uh, you know, essentially, you know, Leninist, uh, you know, Nationalist Party. Um, and the, you know, they had many setbacks. Think of the 1979 uh, Kaohsiung incident, where many of the leading proponents were actually imprisoned. Um, but, you know, I hone in on, on one particular episode of this Dangwai uh, era, and that is the early 1980s. And it's, in a way, it can be almost compared to mainland China today. Of course, mainland China is, is a, um, it's much tougher. It's a harder nut to crack, so to speak. Um, but in the ni- early 1980s, we had um, you know, these very dark years um, where the opposition was suppressed, uh, the leading proponents were in jail. And there was one individual, Kang Nixiang, he, he led this movement through those uh, dark years and he paved the way for the founding of the Democratic Progressive uh, Party. And I think this is a very interesting um, episode because um, what this um, uh, gentleman achieved, uh, Kang was a self-taught, uh, kind of almost like a social uh, democrat uh, from you know, rather, um, you know, a poor background uh, who, who rose through the ranks. Uh, he was very, you know, um, hardworking uh, and you could say entrepreneurial uh, in, in his political advocacy as well. And what he managed to do is um, he kind of struck a balance between more militant uh, uh, factions within the opposition movement and uh, conservatives in the ruling uh, Nationalist Party. What I only found out through the research of this book is he was actually on good speaking terms with uh, the successor of Chiang Kai-shek, uh, the son uh, of Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, Jiang Jingguo. So they had um, face-to-face conversations and somehow they, they trusted each other. And this was significant because um, although the movement was suppressed, um, in nineteen eighty four. Uh, Kang actually took a delegation of Danghuai politicians to Washington, D.C. Uh, and he, here he must have struck a, a deal with uh, Jiang Jingguo, so to speak, because um, you know, why should he allow him to go to Washington, D.C. to kind of raise the profile of the opposition, right? Um, but uh, the kind of the compromise was that um, Kang supported uh, the Nationalist Party in a way by um, arguing that the, uh, the United States should continue to provide uh, um, weapons for, for the defense of Taiwan uh, vis-a-vis China. But simultaneously, he asked the Americans to support the opposition movement. 
And that was very, very significant because it gave, you know, the Downwire and later the DPP a real uh, standing in, in the United States. So he internationalized the movement. Um, he uh, gained U.S. support for democratization. And when the DPP was founded in 1986, and this is, you know, where Taiwan really differs from mainland China, unlike the China Democracy Move, you know, the China Democracy Party, which was suppressed in, uh, uh, in, in 1998, uh, Jiang Jingguo actually um, tolerated the DPP as long as they didn't kind of um, advocate independence, etc., and so this was a real breakthrough under Kang Nixiang's uh, leadership. And I think it's really interesting because he, he managed to kind of, you know, bridge, you know, the militant uh, faction in the in opposition, opposition movement. He kind of managed to engage with the autocrats. He internationalized the movement. So I think there's much to be learned from this uh, particular episode. Um, that's really interesting. Um Another way you say that the path to democracy was forged was in relation to um, issues of national identity and language and cultural policies. Um, you talk about how difference was emphasised in relation to, you know, bringing on greater democratization. Can you talk a bit more about this, please? Yeah, sure. I mean, these days... Um, for many reasons, people frown at identity politics um, uh, because it's often kind of this us versus them uh, kind of uh, problematic. Um, you know, think of the cultural wars that we've seen in the US, but increasingly also in the UK and in Europe and in uh, other parts of the world. Um, but I think sometimes we don't, we shouldn't take this uh, critique too far. Um, we don't have to support nationalist causes or um, particular, you know, nation-building narratives um, uh, by, by just simply uh, acknowledging that, for example, for the Taiwanese, um, you know, they were not allowed to speak their uh, language. So after the Nationalist Party arrived in uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, children were not just discouraged from speaking Taiwanese, but they were forbidden to do so. Um, or, uh, you know, the kind of different historical memories of the Taiwanese were also suppressed. So uh, parents at home had to be extremely, you know, careful that they didn't mention even like the, the 228 incident uh, of 1947, because if children were to speak about that in school, this could really get uh, the parents into trouble. So this is, uh, you know, why they had like they call about it, uh, call, call this era like the the white terror, um, and so if if you've been at the receiving end of uh, uh, state suppression, uh, to say that you know I would like to speak um, my own language or I would like to kind of um, uh, commemorate the fallen and the, the victims of authoritarianism, that is a very human desire. Uh, that should be respected. And so, um, in a way, for example, the Danwai, they had different factions. You had the more nationalist uh, Taiwanese, for, for example, and you had those, let's say, modernizers who, who wanted liberalization, democratization as a, as a way to solve social problems. And they were not necessarily on the same page. But you need both. You can't say one kind of, let's say, stream in the, in the democracy camp is more important than the other. Um, they, they are complementary. And so, although I'm not a great fan of uh, 
nationalism. But I've also come to understand that, um, of course, you know, democracy activists are often patriotic um, and, um, you know, even nationalist. Uh, and the reason is they do care about the Commonwealth. They want to improve it. They want self-government. And so if you're not patriotic, if you're not, you know, let's say mildly nationalistic, and I, I mean it in the most positive uh, way, way possible, then why should you do all this? Um, so I think yeah. it's understood, uh, you know, uh, also from the academic side, that this is a very powerful driving force. And I think um, oftentimes it's quite easy, if you live in a Western liberal democracy, to forget um, how oppressive, you know, some governments can be and continue to be um, and how restrictive that is in terms of like uh, kind of forging any kind of path to democracy. Um, and yet, you know, we you, you pick out in China, in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, these key episodes um, where, you know, there have been steps forward despite the oppression of, say, not being able to speak your own language or um, you mentioned before the demo, uh, the domesticating oppressiveness in the mainland. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk, you've touched on two key episodes in Taiwan, the Dangwei movement and then the formation of Taiwan's DPP party. Can you also talk about the other two um, key episodes you identified in 2000 to 2008, the Chen Shui Bian's two-term presidency, and then from 2008 to 16, Ma Ying-jeou's presidency as well. Well, I think it's very interesting. I mean, this is already um, kind of post-liberalization, uh, democratization. Of course, uh, Chen Shui-bian is the first um, democratically elected uh, politician of the opposition camp to um, serve uh, as a president. But it, it kind of also is interesting for a newly uh, um, democratized uh, a country like Taiwan and to see some of the, the problems that uh, come, come with the process. So the DPP kind of wins power, but it's, it's, um, it's a very um, difficult kind of setup because they hold on the, the presidency, but they didn't have a majority in parliament. So in, in effect, it's a split government. But because they're not on uh, good speaking terms with the Nationalist Party, which they fought you know, tooth and nail over the decades, um, and you know, they have very strong and you know, legitimate grievances, of course, against the Nationalist Party, um, they can't implement their, their reform uh, policies well. Uh, because how can you govern when, when you don't have a majority in parliament? And so, in a way, for the two terms that he served, um, he had to constantly rely on all sorts of antics, symbolic politics, and uh, in, essentially use a, a fairly manipulative um, kind of approach to politics uh, to, to um, advance his, uh, his uh, and the DPP's uh, agenda. And that is that's actually quite problematic. Because at one point you do need to forge a consensus, especially um, given that Taiwan is uh, always facing uh, the threat of military annexation from mainland China. And so um, this kind of um, uh, was a, a, a huge problem for Chen Shui-bian all, all those eight years. And 
ultimately, of course, he he was um, indicted uh, for corruption um, uh, charges and and actually sent to prison, and, and became also a, a victim in in a way of. Um, the DPP's uh, reform agenda I- itself, because the DPP, of course, always had uh, complained about the, the Nationalist Party's corruption, had um, kind of toughened up uh, anti-corruption legislation, and then actually their own uh, president uh, fell victim to the higher standards uh, that they themselves set. Um, but I mean, that speaks that, you know, uh, democratization has uh, improved things uh, in, in Taiwan, Um because it's possible to indict and uh, imprison a corrupt president. Now, that's certainly something that wouldn't happen in mainland China, for example. And if we talk about Mindyo, it's uh, quite interesting, those eight years, they are problematic for another reason, because when people were fed up with Chen Shui-bian after those eight years, um, they gave Mindyo, you know, a resounding victory in 2008, and he had a majority in parliament, so in a way he could govern, but he kind of took this mandate to mean that he could just push aside the DPP in a, in a, in a semi-authoritarian way, you could say. And he also didn't reach out across the aisle. Uh, he, he tried to reverse much of the, the, you know, the kind of uh, reforms that the DPP had um, implemented. And in, in particular on the national identity issue, um, we could see that, okay, Chen Shui-bian was pushing for a more, like, um, um, for, for greater, like, uh, you know, uh, a Taiwan, uh, you know, a distinctive Taiwanese identity. And then, mind you, just went in the opposite direction. And predictably, you know, that would create a huge tension, uh, which then resulted in social movements, in the Sunflower Movement. And then, actually, um, uh, uh, after eight years, of course, the DPP... Um, uh, regained uh, the presidency with uh, President Tsai and and also uh, won a majority in, in uh, the legislative union in the parliament. So it's quite interesting to see that after liberalization, democratization, you know, started 1986 um, and throughout the 1990s, um, when when you look at the electoral uh, landscape. Um, it's really volatile, and um, you see these huge swings, to, you know, in in either direction. Um, but yeah, it it has now resulted in uh, the presidency of Tsai Ing-wen, and she was just re-elected. Uh, so we do see now some some form of consolidation, one could argue. Um, but it also again speaks, you know, to to the fact that yeah, we we have to think about democratization processes in decades, not in years. Yeah, and I think actually that's a really interesting time then to talk about Hong Kong because, you know, on the one hand we've got China who's still a very strict authoritarian regime and then on the other hand is Taiwan which has gone through this very long process of democratisation. And, you know, Benny Tai has, the Hong Kong scholar, has described Hong Kong moving from a position of semi-democracy to semi authoritarianism. Um, So then just going back a little, just to put Hong Kong into a bit of context in this uh, kind of struggle for democracy, can you talk firstly a little bit about pre-1997 Hong Kong under British colonial rule and Chris Patton, the Hong Kong's last governor, trying to put in these um, liberalisation reforms from the top down 
do you think it was a case of too little, too late before the handover back to China or um, did that help democracy in Hong Kong? Yeah, I think Hong Kong is a a very curious case. And um, uh, so far we've spoken about mainland China and Taiwan. Uh, And, of course, in both cases we have, you know, the uh, successors of, you know, the, well, or the two parties that were involved in the civil war, the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalist Party, yeah, calling the shots as the, the kind of the ruling parties, the governing parties. Now, in the case of Hong Kong, of course, because it's, um, you know, it was indeed a, a British uh, colony, there were actually as early as uh, 1946, um, um, there were, um, you know, British uh, politicians who thought that perhaps they should introduce uh uh, political reform and move towards a more representative uh, system. So Mark Young actually kind of uh, came up with uh, re- reform ideas to give um, uh, the lo- local population uh, greater self-government. But eventually these uh, plans were shelved in part because they were worried that, uh, the British were worried, that if they were to open up the political arena in Hong Kong, this may give the Chinese Communist Party uh, on the mainland, and the Nationalist Party from Taiwan, kind of uh, almost like a proxy to continue to to battle it out in terms of like this unresolved civil war. And of you know, in hindsight, this is a mistake. They should have um, introduced uh, democracy to Hong Kong much earlier, but they didn't. And so, only in the 1980s, when it became clear that uh, Hong Kong would indeed be returned uh, uh, under you know. Um, and come under uh, PRC sovereignty, only then they started kind of uh, thinking about, okay, how can we uh, make uh, the legislative uh, council more representative, have more direct elections, etc. And that's, in a way, why I argue it's been too little too late. But, you know, to Chris uh, Patton's uh, credit, uh, I mean, he he tried to do as much as he could, Um under the given circumstances. And of course, the problem is um, whatever he introduced in terms of reforms could be reversed after the handover. And um, this this was actually um, yeah, articulated by the Chinese Communist Party. They constantly warned him uh, when you know, taking reforms that um, he, he must not go too far. So I think he, um, he also worked under you know, extreme limitations um, and so, um, although he seems uh, in, in recent interviews, in recent years, he seems to be regretful that he uh, didn't do enough. I think actually under the given circumstances, he uh, he actually greatly expanded, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the political liberties of the Hong Kongers. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I definitely agree with you. Um, and then so after 1997, you know, you, you talk a bit about this in the book about Hong Kong when it did become under PRC sovereignty. Um, and some of the examples you give are of selective decolonization, for example, in relation to the school system, in relation to the free press, the hollowing out of already comparatively weak democratic institutions. Like you've just said that the PRC government did warn Chris Patton that they would reverse um, any of these liberties. Can you talk about what went on after 1997 when Hong sure. Kong was first returned? Sure. I, I think what happened really is uh, they were mindful of public opinion. Uh, 
see in 1997 that's only um, yeah eight years after Tiananmen. So um, uh, the PRC, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, was trying to reestablish itself as a credible kind of uh, trustworthy international partner. So they didn't want to mess up uh, that process by um, you know imposing direct rule on Hong Kong from day one. Uh, so what they did instead is they played a very long game of selective decolonization. And you've just mentioned education, you know, at press, we could add policing as well. And so the problem with this kind of, um, you know, using a salami tactic um, of kind of slicing up, uh, you know, that those uh, semi-democratic uh, you know, institutions in Hong Kong is um, that, you um, Decolonization, of course, in the case of Hong Kong, doesn't mean liberalization and democratization. Yeah. Actually, it means a reversal of those uh, you know, steps taken under Chris Patton. And normally, I mean, I think in a, in a discourse about uh, you know colonies and decolonization, normally one would kind of welcome that from a normative uh, standpoint, right? But in the case of Hong Kong, actually, um, it's exactly the opposite. Um, uh, it, it means just, uh, you could say, a recolonization, although that term is, of course, politically charged um, uh, So, uh, because Hong Kong does come under um, uh, PRC sovereignty that is not even disputed in the, um, in the democracy camp. So this is a very special case. But in terms of like the, the, the mode of like the, the governance mode, we see that um, actually the Hong Kong SR government um, had limited autonomy to begin with. And we could see as early as 2014, for example, that uh, the liaison office of the Communist Party, you know, they, they played a huge role. And, um, for example, um, during the Umbrella Movement, um, all of the crisis management didn't really happen in Hong Kong. It happened in Shenzhen. And so we do see this indirect rule of the Chinese Communist Party which of course also manifests itself um, uh, by you know working through uh, other proxies, for example, the Hong Kong tycoons uh, who are dependent on CCP patronage, and so here we can think back to you know this uh, you know rule by bribery, rule by fear, the carrots and sticks. You know these Hong Kong tycoons, if they want to you know do business in mainland China, they, they are very much, you know, um, they have many incentives to, to toe the party line. And then, of course, yeah, you see all these other kind of moves towards uh, kind of neutering the legislative council, hollowing out the basic law, you know, the broken promises on universal suffrage. And then, of course, last year's, um, you know, um, protests against the extra extradition law. Um, you know, I mean... Uh, it, the, the writing was on the wall all, all those years, uh, but I think still um, it, it was quite shocking for the outside world to see and also perhaps for the Hong Kong democracy movement uh, how, how, how swift it, in the end the CCP moved uh, towards um, yeah, restricting uh, political and civil liberties in Hong Kong. Yeah, and I think this leads into um, you describing Hong Kong as the proverbial canary in the coal mine in relation to democracy. Um, can you can you talk more about this, please, and yeah. what you mean? I mean, I think, look, I'm in admiration for what the, the good people of Hong Kong have uh, achieved over these years. They put up a really good fight under impossible circumstances. Uh, and, uh, 
they they did everything they could to um, you know prevent this slide towards um, uh, autocracy. Uh, now, having said that, I do think that if one looks uh, at the entire process, let's say since 1997 until now, those 23 years, um, it's it's one thing to critique the Communist Party, the Hong Kong SA government, uh, and I think their agenda has been quite clear. Um, but I do in my book uh, critique um, uh, the uh, Hong Kong's democracy movement. Now, one could say that's unfair who am I to judge anything that's happening in Hong Kong? I'm not living there. I don't have to battle it out. But I do think um, as a friend of the Hong Kong democracy movement, uh, one also has to be sober uh, in kind of analyzing some of the, you know, one-sided strategic approaches and tactical errors that also um, have uh, occurred. And I argue that actually the pan-democrats have been underperforming since the 1997 uh, handover. So let me just perhaps uh, point out, th- uh, you know, three things. Um, so in my mind, uh, you know, for example, the Democratic Party failed to reform itself. Um, and I'm thinking here um, of Martin Lee, for example. He he was a very middle class kind of uh, modernizing reformer, almost like Kang Nixiang. But unlike Kang Nixiang in Taiwan, he he tried to kind of keep the social movements uh, and, you know, um, uh, perhaps the more radical uh, elements of the the, the pan-democratic camp under control uh, by excluding them from from the political party structure. And I think this is, uh, in hindsight, this was probably a mistake because in a democratization process, an opposition party has to align itself with social and political movements. Now, we have seen, you know, on an ad hoc basis, uh, in in the in the case of Hong Kong, of course there have been you know ad hoc coalitions, but they often fell apart, and so we we can see this very uneasy relationship between political parties, social movements, and and NGOs, and partly because the Democratic Party didn't manage to reform itself, many of the younger activists kind of left the party or you know formed their own party, and so we see this enormous proliferation of various. Uh, you know, parties almost like NGOs, often with just one individual kind of representing the party, so to speak. And um, that, of course, undermines the, you know, the cohesion of the pan-democratic camp. You know, if you really want to push for liberalization, democratization, you need one opposition party, one big church that can integrate all these different factions. But they didn't achieve that. And then we see the rise of localism, nativism, especially after 2014, because many of the younger activists think, well, okay, if you don't give us universal suffrage, if you don't honor one country, two systems, then, you know, why should we focus on one country? You know, um, you know, if, if you don't give us two systems, then, you know, maybe we need two countries. Uh, you know, maybe we need Hong Kong independence. Um now, I think this is for many, many reasons very, you know, rather difficult to achieve because you, you know, you have a land border with mainland China. Hong Kong is dependent on, you know, food and water supplies uh, from mainland China. So, like, real independence, I think, would be, you know, rather difficult to to uh, achieve. But it's not necessarily surprising that, you know, people are um, fed up and frustrated with, you know, the, you know, the older pan-democrats. And this brings me to my, you know, third point. I think... 
um, uh, because of this kind of uh, uh, tension in terms of like, you know, the different approaches between the, the younger and the older activists, um, regardless actually of, of these differences, um, we actually see that perhaps in the case of Hong Kong, um, the democracy movement has actually been overly reliant on what I call this anti-establishment approach, uh, Uh, for example, when I spoke with, uh, you know, my friends in Hong Kong and I just asked, so how many people actually try to work within the system, trying to bring it, uh, you know, about re reform using a Trojan horse or a trans-establishment approach, they could basically tell, you know, tell me one name and one name only, Christine Law. And, uh, you know, she used to be uh, a pan-democrat and, you know, representing the, the you know, yeah, um, she worked in the legislative uh, council. But then she she joined the CY Leung government uh, working on environmental issues. And she was often described by, um, you know, activists in the pan-democratic camp as a turncoat, as a, as a sellout. Now, the problem with that kind of characterization is you do need um, people within the system who are sympathetic to your cause. Um, they're not necessarily your allies, but at least they need to kind of within the system open the doors or uh, argue for less you know, draconian countermeasures against uh, the um, uh, democracy movement. So also think of Kang Minxiang in Taiwan. He was on good speaking terms with Jiang Jingguo, and that certainly helped kind of... Um, uh, create some, some political space for the Dan Wai and later the DPP uh, to exist and then flourish. But in the case of Hong Kong, we don't see that at all, really. And yes, um, you know, they've been very strong in terms of street protests and social movements. And I think it's uh, admirable and, you know, they're very brave. But I think on its own, um, I, I think we can now say uh, that was not enough to bring about liberalization, democratization. Yeah, and so I do think your critique of the Hong Kong democracy movement is fair and it is important and we do need to discuss these things, especially, as you say, as a friend of Hong Kong um, and looking at the ways democracy, this process can be um, kind of moved forward. Um, just kind of tying it all together On that point, I think in your conclusion, you, you argue that China affairs scholars should develop a critical stance towards the excesses of the CCP rule in mainland China and its periphery. Contemporary Chinese studies as a whole runs the risk of becoming complicit in the CCP's united front. Now, I'm wondering if you can just explain this, just tying everything together, and also whether you think there's a duty on China scholars, um, especially those outside China or Hong Kong, um, in relation to what they conduct their research on and how they do it. Yeah, this is a big topic. I mean, okay, let me let, let me try to unpack this. Um, I mean, from the vantage point of uh, um, mainly Chinese Taiwanese and Hong Kongers, they may at times say, you know, who are you to judge us? Or, you know, like for example, Andreas, they could say you're German, you live and work in the United Kingdom and you, you, you study the region. Mm, you know, what gives you the right to critique either the governing party, you know, the political uh, oppressors, or even, uh, you know, the, the democracy movement. But I think um, outsiders have a role to play. Our kind of uh, view from the outside can enrich, you know, the, the perspectives of insiders. 
So I don't think is you know that our view is necessarily better or more accurate than the views of insiders, but it's complementary. And people people can learn from our points of view, they can accept them or reject them. Now, the problem I have with uh, Sinology and uh, uh, contemporary Chinese studies in general is very often um, outsiders have um, gone the easy route, so to speak, um, and have, um, you know, knowingly or unknowingly affiliated themselves with, uh, you know, the, the governing elites. Uh, so, for example, in the case of mainland China, um, there are lots of um, uh, academics who, who, who mm, by and large, follow the, the, the lead of the Chinese Communist Party in terms of um, the topics they select to study, the way they discuss uh, these issues. So just to give you one example, um, there has been, uh, in political science, for example, a debate about the legitimacy of the Communist Party. Now, I think it's not very legitimate, but um, uh, in in the academic, academic discourse, um, there have been academics who said, well, we shouldn't discuss, you know, the question of legitimacy. Let's have a look, you know, how effective this, uh, you know, mode of governance is, you know, in terms of state capacity, can they deliver? Uh, and uh, alternatively, they then have looked at the question, you know, do people in China support the Communist Party? And yes, they found out there are, of course, people who support <laughs> the Communist Party, some people you know, from the middle class in, in the urban areas, etc. But the problem then, in my view, is um, the question whether the Chinese Communist Party enjoys political legitimacy and the question whether the Chinese Communist Party has popular support. These are two different issues. And so for um, China specialists or sinologists uh, to, to say, well, maybe, you know, the question of popular support is more important than, you know, the question of political legitimacy, this is problematic. Um, because I would concede, yes, there, you know, the Communist Party, of course, like many authoritarian regimes, has, you know, limit, limited social, you know, societal support, but it is a totally, you know, from a democratic perspective, illegitimate government. And, um, that is something a lot of uh, uh, China specialists would feel very uncomfortable writing or, 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 or uh, saying in, in a public discourse, for example, a podcast like this one. And I think that's then, you know, very problematic. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I mean, definitely the case of Hong Kong shows us and a lot of the things going on in China, especially like the Uyghur population, shows that we do need to keep this discussion going um, and it's not enough just to accept the legitimacy um, and as academics, you know, kind of stop the conversation. Um, well, there is a role. Yeah, and also I think, I mean, the real uh, dividing line, I think, is um, whether or not um, uh, academics are socially engaged. Um, I mean, there is, of course, an argument to be to, to be made for purely theoretical, you know, pie-in-the-sky research. They're, they're, you know, that's legitimate, uh, so don't get me wrong. But I think in yeah. the case of mainland Chinatown, Hong Kong, um, you know, these autocratic systems have real-world um, implications for the population. And, you know, we, we sh you know, our empathy should be with the suppressed population, so to speak, to put it very bluntly. 
and our empathy should be with the autocratic elites. Um, and my impression is that very often, especially in Germany, but also partly here in the UK and other places, a lot of uh, folks try to explain, you know, why the Communist Party you know, has to use draconian, like, you know, uh, means to govern a big country like China with a huge population. And these kind of very unconvincing arguments are being doled out, uh, you know, quite frequently, actually. Um, uh, but, you know, it, another perspective would be to say, you know, there is official China and, of course, there's unofficial China and we have to pay attention to both. And, um, you know, I have uh, certainly paid more uh, attention to what I call unofficial China, those independent-minded academics, activists, environmentalists, etc., who want to bring about change because very often they are ignored, they are marginalized uh, in the public discourse. People don't pay attention to them. And instead, they, they only talk about Xi Jinping, they only talk about the Communist Party, they only talk about uh, official uh, China. Uh, and I think this is a mistake because it kind of portrays uh, Chinese um, state, but also Chinese society as this monolithic block where there are no diverging opinions and interests, but nothing could be further from the truth. And so, you know, in terms of my own advocacy with this book, but also in my you know, media engagement, public engagement, I always tried to, to make the point that let's not forget about uh, unofficial China and uh, Yes, it is being suppressed. You know, those civil society actors that I have worked with uh, over, you know, the past 10, 15 years, many of them have been purged and um, yeah, some of them went to jail. Um, but, you know, they exist. They have a, a very different vision uh, for the country's uh, future. And it's high time that we pay attention, you know, to what they say and think. Yeah, and I think that's a really good reminder. It's uh, it's very easy sitting in the liberal democratic West to just accept this official China narrative, but it's I, I do think uh, we should, as academics, as outsiders, um, you know, continue to question, continue to have these discussions, um, you know, and not take China as this monolithic block. So I think that's that's an excellent reminder, and that really comes through in your book, um, the significance for the people in China, Taiwan and on and Hong Kong and also the wider ramifications for the rest of the world. Um, Andreas, just before you go, um, I'd just like to ask you what you're working on next. Well, that's an excellent question. I mean, um, I've been like literally thinking about this book for, for 10 years uh, and I had been like procrastinating and thinking, you know, how, how can I tie all this uh, together? So it's been, you know, a major project uh, and I'm glad I, I wrote this book. But of course, uh, you know, it's not possible to just write another book uh, of this caliber just straight, straight away. Um, so I think what I'll do, um, I have always had another strand in terms of my research interests. Um, I have looked at, you know, how the West engages with China more broadly I wrote my PhD about Sino-German Development Corporation and I have taught on EU-China relations. And given what happens uh, in Hong Kong, given what has happened in, inside China, you know, in terms of the treatment or, you know, uh, maltreatment of the Uyghurs and Kazakhs, um, one of uh, my concerns is how can we, um, 
you know, toughen up, you know, Western China uh, policy? Uh, how, how can Germany, how can the UK, how can Europe uh, develop a more assertive uh, China policy? So um, I think what I'll do is um, I'll probably write a book about um, this shift from what I call naive China engagement towards a more assertive uh, China constraint. Um, and uh, hopefully can write this, uh, you know, fairly quickly uh, to kind of document, you know, uh, this rather monumental monumental shift that's c- currently happening uh, in terms of Western China uh, policy, especially in Europe, uh, because I think this is uh, worth documenting. It's also worth discussing um, because, uh, as we all know, um, now with the national security um, law, the so-called national security law in Hong Kong, um, yeah, one country, uh, two systems is no more. Uh, you know, the, the civil and political liberties of the Hong Kongers are being stripped away. And there's a real danger now that uh, Xi Jinping may move on on Taiwan, that we may actually see a military annexation of Taiwan in the foreseeable future. At least that's more than a theoretical possibility. And this is something, of course, that, you know, Western liberal democracies will have to contend with and should think about and anticipate and and hopefully, you know, do anything they can do to prevent that uh, from happening. So I think this will be kind of the, the next big project, uh, like a, a book on EO-China relations. Mm, that that sounds like essential reading for our times. I'll, I'll certainly, I know myself, I'll be looking out for it, um, especially building on your your book, um, Democracy in China, Taiwan and Hong Kong. I mean, I found that like so invaluable. So yeah, I'll, I'll look forward to your new work. Um, and just to recap, you've been listening to the new books in law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking with Andreas Fulda about his new book, The Struggle for Democracy in Mainland China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, Sharp Power in Its Discontents. I really recommend that you get a copy of it. It's so important to understand what's going on in the world now, what's going on in China, and its periphery. You can catch Andreas on Twitter at AMF China. Andreas, thank you for your time. Thank you again for having me. Bye. Bye for now.